study of uh, the, the book of Psalms. Um, and uh, we're in Psalm 14. And the cool thing about going through them systematically like what we're doing is you really begin to see a bigger picture, even within the Psalms, even though they were written at different times by different people. I really, it's really cool to see the work of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit has been the, the, the inspiration behind what was written here, and we receive it as God's Word, and we see these dots being connected. That's a cool thing when you do a systematic study through the Bible, but, but not only do you get to see that, but you get to we get the whole counsel of, of the Word of God, right? And that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, you don't get my lame opinions, my, you get you get God's word. My opinions are lame because um, everybody's got opinions and they're like armpits. You guys heard that? And they stink. And um, if you want my opinions, hopefully we can talk sometime outside of you know this setting and I'll give you my opinions. But while I'm up here, I want to be diligent and faithful to give you God's word because God's word has the power to change our lives. God's word has the power to to bring light inside of us so that it may go out from us into the world that we live in. And as I was studying, preparing for this psalm, <clears throat> I, I like this psalm. I, I think it's so applicable for the world that we're living in today. It really gives us some answers to why I think certain people are a certain way and what's going on in their mind and in regards to the way people who don't believe in God or are resisting God, maybe what they're thinking and, and where they're at. And, and, and it's important for us to know this because I think sometimes we can walk around or there can be a temptation to walk around with kind of our noses in the air a little bit about people who don't believe in God and are living ungodly lives and go, you're, you're so dumb. You know, why are you doing this? And, and we can become resentful and angry because of the way that they treat us, especially when we see our society and our culture moving so far away from God and it has a negative effect on our lives in so many ways. And even this last Friday, the Supreme Court ruled against the, the churches in California. The, the churches in California appealed their case all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you can have in-person church services, but I think the occupancy is like 25%, is that right? And, um, and you can't, they can't sing. They cannot sing in church. And um, it's, it's real... It, it can, the tendency can be like to be, and we want to have a righteous anger towards those things. We want to be, we want to be angry with those ungodly things and, and um, not sin. But at the same time, guys, the word that keeps coming to my mind is compassion. We need to have compassion on those people who are opposed to God and are, are opposing us. The temptation is to retaliate back, to see people in this place, not really understand what's going on, not that we're making excuses for their ungodly behavior, but maybe understand at a heart level what's going on. And remember, there was once a time when we were those people who were against God and against God's people. And it took somebody on that side, on God's team, reaching into our lives, right, and going, come on over, there's a better way. And so this knowledge and this information that we gain today from going through Psalm 14, may it not just be an affirmation of us being right and them being wrong, okay? That doesn't do any good, but may it be an encouragement for us to have compassion, for us to love our enemies, to do good to those who despitefully use us, to pray for our enemies like Christ has told us to, that we would be different than the rest of them around us that are, that are, are walking in godly ways. And I know it's difficult to do. Sometimes I even struggle with, with even praying for, for some of these people who I have, um, you know, relationship with because in their, 
hatred towards God and their denial of God, they can be very antagonistic. They can be very um, hurtful. And, and, and my reaction can be to, to respond in the same way. And that's not showing them Jesus. That's not showing them the love of God. So with that being said, in Psalm 14, if you're looking there, we'll get to it in, in just a minute. But I want to let you know on March 14th, 2018, in Cambridge, England, one of the world's most famous atheists, Stephen Hawking, died. You guys might remember that. Stephen Hawking, who was one of the greatest minds on earth, brilliant mind, died at the age of 76. Upon his death, there was a famous astrophysicist named Neil deGrasse Tyson who said this, his passing has left an intellectual vacuum in his wake. Um, Now, at the time of Hawking's death, there was an interesting news article. I think it was in Science Magazine. I don't know who wrote it. But it, it was written, and I want to read to you a portion of that article to you this morning. So it goes on, it says, quote, Hawking's most famous works were his studies of black holes and relativity, where he wrote several, several, several popular science books, including A Brief History of Time. But while his intellectual abilities are what made Hawking a hero for many In the scientific world, it was his outlook on his own morality and life and his ability to solely look at logic and reason when he stared death in the face daily that made him a hero for many atheists. There was one point where religious advocates tried to use a quote from his book, A Brief History of Time, to suggest that Hawking did have a belief in God. The quote is, it would be, the ultimate triumph of human, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we should know the mind of God. Unquote. However, it was clear to people that he was an atheist. In his 2010 book called The Great Design, Hawking clarified this quote, saying that it was a metaphorical comment. He later told El Mundo, in no uncertain terms, what I meant by we would know the mind of God is that we would know everything that God would know if there were a God, which there isn't. I am an atheist. After Hawking was diagnosed with motor neuron disease, ALS, at the age of 21, he lived for more than five decades with medical professionals telling him that he could die at any moment. For atheists who believe Existence on earth is all that there is. Every moment is sacred. Hawking had to aggressively face his own mortality every single day. It would have been understandable for him to abandon evidential reasoning and to fall into the old adage that there are no atheists in a foxhole. Instead, he, Hawking, continued to approach his stance on religion with scientific evidence-based reasoning. He wasn't afraid to call out what he saw as fictitious stories. Hawking once said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken-down computers. This is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. But more than anything, Hawking didn't have to say 
much to poignantly highlight how life as an atheist can have or can mean having a vicious appetite to achieve, to find value and meaning in every hour of the day and realize that the facts are beautiful enough without the fairy tales. Quote Hawking, science is beautiful when it makes simple explanations of phenomena and connections between different observations. Examples include the double helix in biology and the fundamental equations of physics. We should seek the greatest value of our action. I have lived with the prospect of an early death for 49 years. I'm not afraid of death, but I'm in no hurry to die. I have so much I want to do first. But sadly, Stephen Hawking, who died, believing there is no God, became a believer when he met the one true and living God who created the very heavens that Hawking had devoted his life to studying. And I point these things out to you this morning because the Bible, in many different places, takes the time to describe to us people like Stephen Hawking who believe that there is no God. And even the Bible will warn us about this foolish, this kind of foolishness. And one such place is in Psalm 14, which says... The fool, verse 1, has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of the men of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my bread as they eat people and do not call on the Lord? They are, there they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. Father, I do pray, God, as we now go through these verses and into this psalm, that you would give us understanding. Lord, that we would see um, what you desire for us to see. Lord, we are all in different places, and, and, and certainly, Lord, all of us know someone who has rejected you or someone who does not believe that you're real. And I pray, God, that these things that you reveal to us will better help us, Lord, to reach them where they're at. Lord, you desire your wills that none should perish, but that all should live. And Lord, may we have that same heart. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go back through this psalm, it was written by King David. I want to first point out that, that in regards to the, poetic, the poetry that is here, there's two, two, two separate stanzas, okay? Uh, two divisions. And um, with a single concluding verse in verse 7, it kind of wraps up and sums some things up for us. And the first stanza, the first half, is in verses 1 through 3, which really describes, look at it here, it describes the corruption of the world. And then in the second stanza, in verses 4, six, four through 6, it addresses the oppression of the righteous. And those two are, the, you can see how they're two connected, because there's corruption in the world, there's going to be oppression uh, of the righteous. And... Um, 
Then in the final verse, what we read is really David's expression of hope, that, that, that God is greater than the corruption that is in the world as Savior, as, as, as our refuge. And so as this psalm deals with really the character and the conduct of the atheist, it connects us back, <coughs> like I said, as we studied through some of the other psalms, it connects us back, this psalm does, to Psalm 10 and to Psalm 12. And here's the reason why, because these together, these three psalms, what it does is it gives us a, connect, a, 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 a complete picture, a whole picture of the, of, um, of the ungodly man, of the ungodly person. If you remember back in Psalm 10, the focus is put on the prideful attitude of the, the ungodly. And then in Psalm 12, the focus is on the deceitful works of the ungodly. So you have the prideful attitude, you have the deceitful works, and now in Psalm 14, the focus is on the corrupt deeds of the ungodly. And, and, and you may consider that to be the same as the, the deceitful words, or deceitful words, excuse me, that was Psalm 12. But the, the deeds are a thing that flows from the mind, the heart, and the will. And that's what they're evident by, and that's one of the things that David speaks here is one of the one of the character traits of the one who says there is no God. Now, I want to point out that Psalm 14, there's a duplicate of that psalm in Psalm 53. There are a few um, small changes, but both of these psalms, when when the commentators uh, try to date stamp these or to see exactly maybe what the historical context for these psalms are, is that there's really two schools of thought in regards to what David is writing about, or who David is writing about. And the first is that David wrote this psalm as some kind of a commentary to describe what the world was like at the time of the flood. And, and we know at the time of the flood that God looked down upon the earth. He saw that there were really no righteous people. There was Noah and, and his family, and God was willing to, 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 to save Noah. We know he, he had Noah build an ark, and, 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 but God destroyed the, the earth. That there was, the earth was filled with, with godlessness and, God, and, 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 and godless men. And so some say that perhaps this is a commentary about that time as David's writing this, this poem about it or, or a song for people to sing. However, there are others who believe that the psalm was written by David after Saul's death, and it was a commentary, therefore, on the state of the nation of Israel. And that may be true because of the verse 7 where Jesus, or where, where David speaks about this redemption or the salvation of Israel that, that God was still going to do in spite of their they're forsaking him. Because remember, Saul was a godless, a godless king. He, he did not listen to God. He did not follow God. Consequently, the, the people of the nation of Israel at that time were in that state as well. And even though both of these options for, for um, some kind of historical contents um, are, are possible, and the best are only rooted in an educated guess. And so um, even within that, it's easy to see maybe how um, the psalm could be describing either one of those events. However, this is what I want to bring your attention to. The bigger picture for us of, 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 of these things um, that we read about, uh, the bigger picture of things that we get to see is that when David writes these things, it can really apply to any group of people or any individual down through time, looking back, or even currently in the, the times that we're living in, and, and it could be historical figures, it could be individuals that we have relationships with, it could be leaders in our current world today that, that we go, oh yeah, I can see this, or this might help me understand that. Um, but groups of people or individuals who say that there is no God. And even though, um, even to those, like I said, who live with us today. So 
as we make our way through these verses, I want to do so by looking at these characteristics. That's going to guide us through um, the study of this psalm, the characteristics that David used to describe the atheist, right? One who says that there is no God. And if you look at verse 1, one of the first things that David says, he says, the fool, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And he goes on to describe them. They're corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none, no there is none who does good. The Lord, it says, looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who they or who seek God. And they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. Again, that word corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And so in this very first verse, the first conclusion, and it's foundational, but the first conclusion that David brings us to or he comes to about the character of the person who says there is no God, he said, is that they are a fool. This is a characteristic of a person who says there's no God. They're fools. And as this character trait sets the stage or the foundation for the rest of what David goes on to write, I need to point out that our English word fool may kind of confuse us a little bit in our understanding of what David's talking about. We get our English word for fool from the Latin word yunco. And it means bellow, right? And, and that's a pretty interesting translation from the, the Latin because when, what it's suggesting is that the fool is a person who's full of air. We say, you know, someone who's being foolish or talking nonsense, we're like, we say, oh, they're full of hot air, right? That's kind of where that saying's come from. It, it also refers to someone who's a babbler or a buffoon. I kind of like that word, buffoon. Um, but in the Hebrew language, which is rich, right, in its, in its way of describing words that we're limited to in our English language, there are three different words used in the Hebrew that are used for this word, the same word fool. Um, the first Hebrew word is the word kisel, and it, re, it, it refers to a person who's not intellectually smart, okay? Someone who is of a, of a, of a small IQ. They are, or they are kisel. Um, then there is the Hebrew word um, ewil, and this is a person who is unreasonable, right? Somebody who knows what's, what's right, and, and yet they, they're just not reasonable. They're being, maybe it can be like your teenagers. <laughs> you're like, you're ewil. Um, they're unreasonable, but the, also it refers to a sense of pervertedness. And then lastly, there's the word nabal, the Hebrew word nabal. And that's probably the one that we're most familiar with because of God's word. And this, the, the Nabal fool, which it refers to a person that is brute, brutish, um, someone who's like a stubborn animal, like a mule, right? Like a donkey. And um, this word should remind us, this word Nabal should remind us of a man in God's word who in 1 Samuel, I think it's 1 Samuel chapter 25, um, where we're told this story that this, there was this man, Nabal. He was a rich man. He was not a dumb guy. Um, he had um, lots of animals and servants, and he had um, apparently a, a beautiful wife. And if you've ever read this account, you'll remember that Nabal was this stubborn man. He was a brutish man. He was unreasonable in his ways. And he acted like a fool, the Bible tells us, when he refused to help David. When David was wandering through the wilderness, one of the things that David and his men did, for some reason, we're not told exactly why, but when Nabal's shepherds were in the fields tending the flocks, David would give them protection, perhaps from, from you know, 
thieves and raiders that would come in. And, 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 and so not, it says that not one of Nabal's servants or sheep were lost while David was watching over them. Well, there came a time when the, the, the shepherds brought the, the sheep back in to be sheared, and it was a time of festival and harvest. And David brought his men to Nabal and said, let us partake of the feast with you. And Nabal's like, no, go pound sand, David, get out of here. I'm not helping you. And he was, he was being foolish. And and um, because he would not give, um, he would not show kindness to David. And the point is, is we don't want to go into the rest of that story. It's an interesting story. Just, you, should, you should read it. But um, the point is, is that a fool, guys, the fool who says there is no God, is not, it's not the person who's lacking some kind of normal intelligence, right? It's not someone necessarily of a, of a, of a small IQ. In fact, they may have a really great mind or be of a brilliant mind or of super intelligence like Stephen Hawking. However, this is the problem with the Nabal fool that the Bible describes here for the atheists that David uses is that they lack, this is what they lack, they lack spiritual wisdom. And they lack spiritual insight, which is always the result of one thing, willful unbelief. Willful unbelief. And, and um, that ultimately is the result of a hard heart towards God. And that's why they're defined as the fool in this sense. And so the Nabal fool, the Nabal fool, has really a moral problem in their heart. It's an issue of morality, a moral problem in their heart. It's not a mental problem in their head. And David can rightly declare this here simply because of the natural evidence that declares to us that there is a God. Evidence that is found in creation, and furthermore, evidence that's found in the human conscience, which Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. And so the fact that some men insist on denying the existence of God, it, it does not simply erase God from the universe, right? Right? Um, rather, their denial speaks to their own standing, as David says, as, as a fool. Their denial does not, does not erase God from the universe. It speaks more to their standing as the fool. The famous evangelist Billy Sunday, speaking about this moral problem in a person's heart, he used to say this. I think it's funny. He says, sinners can't find God for the same re reason criminals can't find policemen. They're not looking. And the Nabal fool described here in, in, in this psalm, he's a self-righteous person who isn't looking for God. Why? Because they wrongly believe that they don't need God. That's where it starts. I don't need God. God is dead, right? I don't need him. Or because they don't, because they don't want to live in a way that God wants them to live. They want to live in a way that pleases their self, in a way that seems right to them. And it's, it's, it's usually, you know, without judging individuals in their heart that we can't see, but it's usually because of both of those reasons. They don't believe that there is a God, or not they, because they don't believe they need a God, and they want to live their lives free from, from God. In other words, the problem with the person who says that there is no God is a, is a will for ignorance to not... Um, it, it's, 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 it's rooted in will for ignorance and not... Um, 
lack of normal intelligence. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote about these kinds of fools, like I said, in Romans chapter 1. But in verses 20 through 22, Paul writes, and he, he kind of explains it like this. He sums it up. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And we're the things that are made that he's talking about. And, and he goes on to say, not just his individual attributes that are being clearly seen, he says, even his eternal power and Godhead. Clearly seen. So that, here's the reason why, this is what the Bible says, so that they're without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts or corrupt in their thoughts, and we're going to talk about this in just a minute, futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ultimately, this is what Paul says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Became fools. And ultimately, guys, the God-denying man is a fool because he denies what is plainly evident to him. And it blows our mind especially when you try to have some kind of rational conversation with these people about the existence of God. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's some t- most of the time it's met with such angst and anger and, 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 and it's just hatred. And, and there's a reason why for that's because they're afraid, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute as well. But the God-denying God man is a fool because he denies what's plainly evident. He has to suppress the truth, what he knows to be true, what all of creation testifies to him clearly and what his own conscience bears witness to. He believes the ungodly man or the God-denying man, he believes this. Think about it. He believes in tremendous and remarkable effect with no cause. This is what I mean. Stephen Hawking was a guy that was like this. He once said this. It blows my mind that someone so smart can be so foolish when you think about it. He said this, because there is a law such as gravity, and I don't understand the basis for his reasoning here. Maybe I'm just an ignoramus when it comes to scientific things. I don't think I am, but I don't follow his logic. He says, because there is, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. That sounds like a fairy tale to me. You know, seriously, So let me read that again. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Okay. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. It's not necessarily to invoke God to light the blue torch paper and set the universe going. And and a man that was so brilliant in his thoughts... He, he probably had more evidence of God's creation than all of us put together, that the fact there is a creator, that there is a designer. He understood black holes and, and relativity and, and charted, you know, charted the skies and looked into the glory of the creation in ways that you and I would never be able to do so. And, he, and his conclusion was, oh, it all came from nothing. It just kind of happened. You know, I was having a conversation with Ron, who's a science teacher, after first service, and, you know, it's like, you've heard that thing. It's like, you know, taking something that's 
been is is super complicated to be built. A, a, a watch, a, an airplane, you know, and it's like you have all these pieces just laying together, and it's like not only did they just spontaneously happen to be there, now they all of a sudden spontaneously just came together in order to make a plane that can fly. I mean, that's the reason and the logic behind what he's using here, and he's taken it to the much greater level of the design and, uh, of, of, of creation itself. And all of creation testifies and demands that we come to the conclusion that there is a creator, that there is a designer. And, and a man who was so knowledgeable in these things was foolish because he, he dismissed what was right before his eyes to say that the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Tremendous and remarkable effect with no cause. He denies what's plainly evident before him. Furthermore, the God-denying man is a fool because he denies these other things. He denies a moral authority in the universe. He believes only what can be proven by scientific method. He takes a dramatic, this one is huge, think about it. He takes a dramatic and losing chance on his supposition that there is no God. That's a, that's, a, that's a gamble. That's a big gamble. Furthermore, he refuses to be persuaded, refuses, and this is what it comes down to perhaps in our, in our opportunities that we get to kind of maybe have conversations with these people, but he refuses to be persuaded by the many powerful arguments for the existence of God. Let me give you four foundational basis arguments for the existence of God. And some of these arguments... For the existence of God, which the fool refuses to be persuaded by, is this. There is the cosmological argument. What is that? The cosmological argument is this. The existence of the universe means there must be a creator. Okay? There's the, the uh, teleological argument. The existence of design in the universe means there must be a designer. You look at our own, our own, the orbit of all of the planets in our own galaxy, and and you go, you look at that, and 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 you see that they've been. When you really studied out, you see that they've been placed there, specifically, and and if if even one of those was out of position in the way that it was, that that it can sustain life like we know it, and 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 so that teleological argument is the existence of design. The existence of design in the universe means there must be a designer. The anthropological argument is this. This is the third argument that they deny. The unique nature and character of humanity means there must be a relational God. That one perhaps for me is one of the most profound. The fact that we as humans are relational, that we have a conscience, that we have you know, the ability to love, we have emotion, everything there that is, is the very nature and character of humanity means that there must be a relational God. And then of course there's the, the fourth, the moral argument, and this is the existence of morality means there must be a governing God. And one of the things that David goes on to kind of confirm that is, is this, that God looks upon all of humanity and sees us in this state of depravity. And so if we're in a state of depravity, then where does morality come from? 
And not just morality as relative to you or relative to me as it seems to be so popular in the world today, but in this true sense where within us we know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. But with their decision, okay, with their decision to willfully dismiss these arguments for the existence of God comes consequences, okay? This is where David goes with it. And it fully reveal, it further reveals their foolishness and how, how they are fools, but consequences in both of their, towards their character and towards their conduct. Constant consequences in character and conduct for these decisions. <clears throat> and so by leaving God out of their lives, ultimately what, what David puts forth here as, he, as we read this, and I'm going to go through these verses a little bit now, he says that they cause the inner person to become more and more corrupt. And that's true. When we are away from God who is good, when we're away from God who is the light, we're less in the light and less in, in God's goodness. It's reflected in our lives. When things are not right with God, things are not right with other people around you. That's the bottom line. So we become more and more corrupt. And, and David starts this by starting by looking at the heart in verse, verse 1. The heart becomes corrupt. But according to what David says in verses 2 and 4, we also see that they are corrupt in their mind, meaning in regards to their understanding and in their knowledge of things. And then according to what David says in verse 3, we also see that they're, they're corrupt in regards to their will, in their, in their mind, in their heart, and then ultimately in their actions, in their will. And this is how it plays out because they turn aside from doing what is good. In fact, what we see, even the fact that here's one of the greatest arguments for morality and human conscience is because we see people today doing what God says is evil and what, are they, what do they do? They call it good. Why would they even care to call it good if they didn't have no sense of morality in what was right and wrong? They have to suppress what they know to be true and, and allow the devil to come in and twist it so that they still believe that they're in some sense of moral goodness even though they're clearly doing things that God has deemed as evil or wicked. But they become so corrupt in their mind, in their heart, and in their will that they just turn away from doing what is good. Now the Hebrew word for corrupt that is used here is the word alach, and it means rotten, putrid and decayed. And it's interesting when you look at other places in the Bible where this word corrupt is used as it describes the heart and mind and the will of a person who says there is no God and how they become corrupt. For example, in Genesis chapter 5 is when this is first used. And God used this word, Alak, when he looked down upon the earth and saw the evil that was in man's heart back in Noah's day. He said, it's all alak, it's all corrupt, it's all rotten, putrid, and decayed. Then again, God, in, in, in 11, Genesis chapter 11, verse 15, in another instance, when God looks upon the world, it's at that time where, where all the inhabitants of the earth are gathered together at the Tower of Babel, where they're like, we're going to be like God. And then lastly, in, in Genesis chapter 18, the same word, alak, corrupt, with in, in Genesis 18.21, with the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God looked upon that, and that's what he saw. And each of those times, there was a judgment. And at the beginning of verse 3, David said, they have all turned aside. And the Hebrew word that is used here for the word turn, it's not so much like they've just turned away. It's like they've turned into something else. The word is sore. 
S-O-O-R. That's the Hebrew word. And, and it, it is a word that is used to describe milk that is turned rancid or sour. That's the kind of turning that God's talking about here. They have turned sour. And the same word is used by God, sadly, to describe the people of God, the nation of Israel one time in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. When they had turned their backs on him and refused, it says, to fulfill the purpose for which they had been created. First, that was to honor God, to love God, to worship God, but also as God's people, as the nation that God raised up and blessed to be a light to the rest of the world about who God is, to glorify God, so that they, so the rest of the world might know God through them. And God said, you've turned. You've soured. And I think that's a warning for us, guys. But this, this, this condemnation is framed at the end of verse 3 as something universal to all people as well. And I think that's why we need to take note of it. It's, not just, it's just not with the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. He says, they have all turned aside, God says. They have all together been corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And we know that's, that's a familiar New Testament passage from the book of Romans where the apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, quotes this psalm, this passage of scripture, as proof that the whole world is guilty before God and can be saved only by the grace of God as revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. But in light of the one who says that there is no God, okay? In light of the one who says that there is no God, it's important to point out that human depravity doesn't mean, even though we're all depraved, right? That, that we, we are not good by nature. We're not. No, not one. But human depravity does not mean this, guys. It doesn't mean that all people are as wicked as they can be. It does not mean that all are equally bad or that no man or woman can ever do anything good. And I point that out because the truth is there are atheists who do good things. Rather, human depravity simply means this. We all have a fallen nature that we cannot change on our own. And that's, one of the, 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 that's why it's so bad for the person who lives in this state where they go, there is no God because there's no hope for his depravity. He cannot change. And that apart from God's grace, no one can be saved from eternal judgment. And this is the absolute miserable state for the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And the reality of that, the truth of that, should move us in the inner man today, in our heart, as the Holy Spirit touches us, where we have compassion upon those people who are in that place, to pray for them, to be willing to continue to speak the truth to them, to endure the, 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 you know, the anger and the attacks that might come when we go, you know, it's about Jesus. God's real. Look at the creation. You're only doing that because you just want to do what you want to do. You deny God, you know, tell them these truths, not in a condemning way, but in a way that their eyes might be opened up and they may be saved from this miserable state that all of man is in apart from God. And so David goes on and he says in verse four, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? In other words, well, I'll get to it in just a minute. This is like, do they really not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? He says, they are in great fear. 
That blows my mind because if you, what are you afraid of if there's no God? Right? For God is with the generation of the righteous. And you shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And so the second stanza, this is what we've just entered into of this psalm, verses 4 through 6. And in these verses is the second universal characteristic of the atheist. It's detailed here for us. And, and this is the fact that, listen, all the fears of those who say there is no God will come upon them when they finally meet God. It'll be, uh-oh, I was wrong. And David brings this truth forward by asking a question, right? There in verse 4. Do the workers' iniquity have no knowledge? In other words, do they really not know that there is a God and that God who is righteous is going to judge them? Do they really not know this? But notice that David immediately answers this question in verse 5 and points out the fact that they do have knowledge. Remember this when we're having conversations with people like this in the world. They know. They may say there's no God in their heart, but they know there is. They know there is. And we already start, because of that, in this place of advantage when we can come to them with that understanding in our mind. I know you know there's a God. You can say this, but I know deep down you know. Well, don't say that about me. You don't know. Well, that's what the Bible says. God told me. <laughs> and, and David answers this question, right, and points out that they have knowledge, that they do know the truth about God, and about waits, what waits for them as a result of their iniquity, saying this, they are in great fear. Not that they will be in great fear, right? We're like, oh yeah, when you get before God, you're going to be, and you're, you, you've, you've lived like this, and you've denied him all your life, you're like, you're going to be afraid. It's, it's not just a when thing, it's a now thing. They are in great fear. A better way of reading this, when you kind of translate it more clearly to the, to the original language here, it's to say this, they feared a fear. They feared a fear. And the truth that David is pointing out is that no matter how strongly a person wishes to deny that God is not real, they cannot escape the evidence that surrounds them or escape their conscience which testifies to be true to them. And hopefully they can't escape us who bear the light before them. So they are in great fear, and they live with great fear, yet they refuse to call upon the Lord so that they may continue, David says here, and, and the Lord affirms it, to work iniquity and do wicked and evil acts against the people of God. Someone once asked the famous 19th century British philosopher Bertrand Russell what he would say if he died and suddenly found himself standing before God. This is what he said. You did not give us sufficient evidence. And I think that there will be and are many people who say that there is no God who will try and claim this same kind of defense on that day. But listen, go back to what we read of Paul in Romans. Listen to this. The fact of the matter is that all of God's invisible attributes are made evident by creation itself. With the heavens above and the earth beneath our feet that is filled with all the wonders of life. And the Bible makes it clear, listen, the Bible makes it clear that even if these things were the only things that God ever gave to mankind, 
or did for mankind as evidence of his existence, God in his word says that this is enough on its own to hold us accountable to him. And the point is, is no one will will be able to stand before God and justly blame God, right, for their unbelief. Another evidence for this is found here in verse 4, which simply delivers another indictment against the one who says there is no God. And it's the fact that they take advantage of the weak and the poor and will not call upon the Lord. And by the statement, the truth of God is pointing us to the fact that all of mankind has a conscience, which literally means that we are a creature that has been created with a knowledge. Conscience with knowledge. That's what that literally means. We've been created. It's placed inside of us. The ability to know and discern the difference between what is right and what is wrong, and yet we still choose what? The wrong. To take advantage of others in order to what? Benefit ourselves rather than calling upon the Lord for his help. That's what David's saying here. And in doing so, they, as verse 6 points out, and I love this because it's so helpful for me in my time of of, of going through this and being in the society that is so anti-God right now, but verse 6 points out that, that what they do in this is that they shame the counsel of the poor. In other words, they mock the trust that we who believe in God, as it appears to them that our hope or trust is worthless. Fairy tales, right? And Charles Charles Spurgeon writing about this, he's one of my favorite commentators, some of the Old Testament things. He, He wrote about the counsel of the poor, those of us who take refuge in the Lord. And he says this, this is, this is what the world mocks about us. He says, He says this, the counsel of the poor. He takes counsel with his own weaknesses and sees that he must depend upon God. Isn't that so counter to culture today? You know, it's that point where we understand how weak we are and how much we need God. Not just on a not just in the everyday basis where Lord, I need you now, but in the in, in regards to our sin, in regards to our depravity, in regards to you know what it takes to be saved from hell. To do what is right, we take counsel with our own weakness, and this is what we conclude. I need God in every day and in every way. And the world, the unbelieving person, the one who says there's no no God in his heart, he looks at us and goes, you guys are just a bunch of fools. You believe in fairy tales. Spurgeon also says that the, the counsel of the poor, he takes counsel with his observations, and he sees the end of the wicked. And and really what that means is is when we see injustice either being done against us or against others, we don't lose hope or, or take ungodly retaliative acts in that sense, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Why don't we do that? Because we believe what God says is that he's going to deal with these people justly and righteously, and, 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 I mean, it's like the world's ways. If you do this to me, I'm going to do that to you twice as much, right? And, and we don't do that. We don't defend ourselves. We pray for our enemies. We do good to those who, who despitefully use us. 
And we do so because we know and trust and hope in the Lord. We take counsel with the observations, not only of this world, but of God's promises, and we see the end of the wicked. Furthermore, Spurgeon says that, that we as God's people, the, 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 those who um, are the poor in that sense, counsel with the Bible and trust it to be the word of God. The world looks at us and goes, you're building your life on a book that's 2,000 years old about a mythological person, right? About a God who just hates everybody and wants to kill them all, you know? It's like, they don't know God. And they look at us going, I live this way, and I, I, I speak this way, and I have hope in this way because of what this book tells me. And they just look at it and go, you've lost your mind. They mock you. And lastly... Um, Spurgeon says that, you know, what we do is we take counsel with our own experience and we see that God answers prayer, meaning that we look to the past as we move forward to the future and know that God is intimately involved in our lives today, hearing us, answering us, working miracles in the lives around us and in our own lives, giving us and providing and protecting for us in every way. God sees and answers our prayers. That's part of our hope. But listen, guys, the worship team wants to come up and we'll end up with this. Even though our counsel is shamed, and even though it's mocked by those who say there is no God, the truth that David declares at the end of this psalm is this, is that our counsel, meaning our hope, is sure. And David gives us that affirmation by saying this, the Lord is our refuge. The Lord is our refuge. And not only that, he is our salvation He's our refuge and our salvation. So when the unbelieving world mocks us or attacks us, we need to remember that they do these things, that when they do these things, they're ultimately coming against God, who is real, who is for us. And because of that, they will never succeed. They will never succeed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for these um, everlasting truths. Thank you, Lord, for giving us insight through your word into, I think, um, the people who we interact with today, kind of the fruit of that in the society that we, we live in, in the culture that we live in today, in the world that we live in today. Lord, where there are so many people that's just denied your existence in spite of all the evidence and then gone forward to build a, a, a culture, a society um, that doesn't believe there's a God, just like they did in the days of Noah, just like they did the Tower of Babel, and just like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, we're living in such a time as this. But God, we know that you still have a plan of salvation for even them, and that you've called us, Lord, you've commissioned us to go and make disciples, to teach people about the things that you've taught us, to love, Lord, one another, and to love them in the same ways that you've loved us. And Lord, that's a hard thing to do without you. And so we pray, God, that you would encourage us and fill us with the same compassion that you have for them. And Lord, that we would um, live for you and not for ourselves. And Lord, that we would see during this time, Lord, that we would see your hand moving in the land of the living. When we see people's lives being changed, that people would repent and turn and come back to what they already know to be true about you. Lord, the things that the world has told them, the things that um, the enemy has deceived them with, that's caused this, this blindness, this spiritual ignorance and blindness. Lord, that you would remove those veils as we talk to these people. And Lord, may we 
Um, like I said, have your heart of love as we do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys stand.